All right, everyone, thank you for tuning in to Honest Defense. Today, I am honored to be joined by Caleb Mason. Caleb is a partner at the law firm of Worksman, Jackson, and Quinn in Los Angeles, where he focuses his practice on all sorts of litigation, including criminal defense. Formerly, he worked as a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of California. And I first came across Caleb's work way back in 2012 when he published Jay-Z's 99 Problems, Verse 2, a close reading with Fourth Amendment guidance for cops and perps. Uh, he published that in the St. Louis University Law Journal, and I think it's my all-time favorite piece of academic writing. In addition to that, Caleb is the author of the upcoming book, Stand Up for Bastards, a uh, novel. Caleb, thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome. Available now. Available no now. Longer up, no longer upcoming. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Available now. Straight on to Amazon and grab it. I'll make sure I include all the links to Amazon and Barnes & Noble in the show notes. It's up on all of them, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So I want to start with the Jay-Z article, and this is something I, I haven't mentioned to you uh, in our previous communications, but I have a bone to pick with you on that because I have been a Jay-Z fan since I was a kid. When I got to law school and I found out that, you know, as a law student, you can get onto a law journal, and as an upperclassman, you can publish your own, they call it a student note, which is basically a, a journal article published by a student. I got really excited, and my, my first idea for a note was, hey, someone should do a legal analysis of Jay-Z's 99 problems. And I, I, did some, uh -oh. I did some research my first year to make sure, okay, hey, no one else has really written on this. It's been mentioned maybe here and there a few times, but no one, no one had this idea yet to, to publish this, this article, this analysis. And you published your article the first semester of my second year. And obviously, oh, no. obviously you did a much better job than I ever could have, but I was both enthralled that someone else was thinking the same way I was, but you broke my heart too, because that was my big idea for, for well, publishing fame. You could have done an angry response. Right? <laughs> I'm, I, relative to you, I, I had zero experience. So I was not about to, to uh, confront you on your expertise. And the article was, was so well done. I mean, I love the article. So I, I was very happy that someone did it. Uh, there was a guy in Canada who published a response piece and it was, the same issues, but from the Canadian law. Oh, interesting. How would it have been different if it was Drake? Because joke. You know, <laughs> it's was it was it dramatically um, different? Was there anything that he that really differed from what you published? No, not not particularly. Um, the uh, <clears throat> there has been a lot of uh, a lot of use of that over the years, though in various places. It has been picked up by. Uh, I know some bar prep courses, some inns of court, uh, CLE stuff. There is a uh, an AP government uh, course material packet that you can buy if you're a high school teacher that I've seen. I didn't put it together. I'm not making money from it. But somebody is. So that's <laughs> right. okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna come after him. Um, the various police academies and sheriff's academies uh, have used it. I have gotten calls from uh, ICE and FBI who wanted to use it in various trainings, public defenders, organizations. I have been in court on a couple occasions and had a, a bailiff, you know, who's a, that's a sheriff's deputy in California. The sheriff's offices provide the you know, court security. So on a couple of occasions, I've had one of them come up to me afterward and, you know, after court and said, Hey, you know, I remember your article from the Academy. Um, it's, and you know, people read it in, in law schools. So it's very, it's very nice that of all of the things that you write, most of them just 
you know, kind of vanish into nothingness pretty quickly and nobody ever reads them. Law review articles are mostly ignored. They kind of exist. I think they exist as a nice training exercise for the law students who edit them and produce the journals. And that's a useful thing for the profession. But, you know, most of them, most of them are not really read by anybody after the fact. This one, though, uh, I'm glad that it has been because that's why I wrote it. Um, I wrote it for my own students. That year I was teaching criminal procedure and uh, I was trying to come up with, you know, clever ways to illustrate uh, the doctrines we were reading. And I always tried to turn to pop culture and pop culture depictions of cops and robbers interactions. Um, and I had uh, a couple students in the class that year who said, hey, did you know Jay-Z just came out with an autobiography and he talks about this incident? So I said, what a great idea. Let's do it. Was, was that the first time you had heard about this song? Did you know about the song before? Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I knew the song. Okay, okay. The autobiography was the first time it heard, I had heard that, that there was a real incident on, uh, on the, the I-95. As a Californian, I would say the right. I-95. It's I-95, the, the uh, highway that goes up, up and down the East Coast. Um, and that he was the, the other thing that's funny about this is that he says in the in the autobiography that he was smuggling the I believe let's see it was raw so that that, that doesn't specify I don't remember whether it was it was uh, powder cocaine or whether it already been cut into crack I don't remember that detail maybe some of your listeners will but he said he had it in a hollowed out sunroof of his car so another thing that I have done is I did a big empirical research project on smuggling methods at the at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, um, particularly on the, the the labor economy. How much do you have to pay to bring in different loads? And anyway, we collected a ton of data from 10,000 arrests. So I actually have in you know on my computer here, I have a nice database, including a breakdown of all the most common smuggling locations in uh, vehicle smuggling of drug loads. And the sunroof is in there. It's not, you know, it's not the most popular one. That would be your gas tank, followed by your spare tire. Um, but uh, the, the the sunroof, decent location. Um, and uh, I was surprised to learn that, you know, that that he actually was able to get away because the, the drug sniffing dog was late. Um, if you or your listeners read the case law on this, um, courts increasingly and i think disappointingly give quite a bit of leeway to officers to hold somebody to wait for a drug dog personally i think I know there's a case called rodriguez from the supreme court um authored by i believe it was ginsburg it might have been sort of my opinion but very nicely worded uh rule that you cannot detain somebody in a traffic stop at all after the purpose of the traffic stop, that is writing your ticket for the traffic violation, has been completed. Like, done. You no longer have, have the, the right to hold them. So if you don't supply the, the officer reasonable suspicion uh, to hold you further, um, then any additional detention to wait for a drug dog is going to be unconstitutional. And I, I mean, we, we obviously need to train our police officers not to be in the habit of just holding people for traffic violations if they sort of have a hunch to hope that a drug dog will be, will, you know, be able to arrive. Whatever. That's a, that's a longer answer than you wanted to that. But uh, No, no, that's great. I, it was, um, I, I, I think the song, everybody knows the song in my generation. 
anyway, I mean, that song <laughs> played nonstop. For yeah. <laughs> a couple of years. That one and what else is from that vintage? Because um, I put it in the in the footnote to the article. Um, was that the the blue album? Charles Barkley. Um, oh, crazy! I mean, hey, I'm crazy. Right, 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 right. Yeah. That one. Um, those two were battling it out. <laughs> I think I think ninety nine problems won out in the long term. I don't I don't oh, hear for sure, crazy too much. I, I can still I can still tell you most of the lyrics from it. Whereas right. crazy, I could barely remember the hook. Right, know? right. Yeah, I did have one area of disagreement with you in your analysis, and it's not a really a legal disagreement; it's a strategic disagreement. In in the song, cop pulls Jay Z over. He asks him, "Do you know why I'm pulling you over?" And Jay Z goes, "Do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know." And you say that's it's actually a good response to say I don't know. Maybe it's probably not a good response to say do I look like a mind reader. Here's the line before that though. Son, do you know what I'm stopping you for? Because I'm young and I'm black and my hat's way down low. Do right. I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. Right. Um, is that a good response? Do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. I think it's a good response. You don't have to say anything. Right. But uh, but saying I don't know why you stopped me, would you tell me? Is always a good response. Right. There are a lot of officers who are trained. This is like a really common sort of field training officer lesson to teach the, the new cops is you make sure that, that you're in control and they're going to give you information first before you're going to give them information. So I have seen this personally many times, both on videos and in persons in person, you know, when, uh, when, when I do ride logs is people will say this, why did you stop me? And the officer's response is, well, let's see some license and ID. We're going to figure out who you are, and then we'll talk about why I stopped you. And while that's a perfectly legally valid way to go about it, what it does is it often triggers, you know, just escalates because people get angry, and then they get into sort of a, you know, an increasing shouting match. Well, well, I asked you why you stopped me. Why did you stop me? Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, tempers get heated. Uh, and you run the risk of escalating into something that really didn't need to be. So if it were me and I were designing these policies and, uh, and, and setting, you know, sort of best practices for department, seems to me you walk up to the side of the car. Good evening, sir or madam. I stopped you for the following reason. Right. Now may I see some license and ID. <laughs> That'd be nice. Registration. Yeah. That'd be nice. There are a lot of cops that do it that way too. So, but um, I, I found like yeah. in, in my experience, and again, this is just kind of strategy to, to keep the situation from escalating. If it's just a matter of me speeding and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? If I, if I concede, I, yes, officer, I, I was speeding. It seems like that de-escalates it in a sense that, that I, I'm conceding that, that he got me for something. And now it's, it's not confrontational. I, does that is that a strategy you would recommend to, to say if it's something that simple where it's not going to escalate into anything more? Do you just say that? Yeah, there's two different questions here, <clears throat> and the one is uh, the legal question, which is you know you don't you don't have to answer any questions at all. You're obligated to provide your identifying documents. That's what you're obligated to do. You don't have to you don't have to sit there and answer questions. Right. Um, so that's you know that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it, though, is the, the, that, you know, the issue you raise, you want to avoid escalating a traffic stop into, a, you know, a violent altercation in which, the, you know, the officer has deadly force sitting on his hip. Um, that's unfortunately a real consideration for a lot of people. So that's then a practical question. Right. Um, 
but it shouldn't be. Right. I don't think that we ought to, you know, have a have a, a, a general practice of every traffic violation being a potential, you know, use of deadly force. Um, I think there's a lot of ways that we could handle them better. Um, as for you, if you're stopped when you're, you know, and, and the officer says, do you know why I pulled you over? I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't advise you to say because I was speeding. I mean, <clears throat> what if you wanted to contest the ticket later? What if you, you know, what wanted to go to court and, and, and make the government put on its proof? Um, the, uh, they're going to have to do that. Moreover, how do you know you were speeding? Maybe you weren't speeding. I don't know. Um, it's not, I don't think that that should be part of the standard script in every traffic stop. Um, it's sort of like the question also in the song, do you mind if I look around the car a little bit? I don't think that we should, as a matter of practice, treat every vehicle stop as an occasion to try to, you know, fish for a, a consent car search by saying something like that. And the guy's like, yeah, whatever. And then, okay, get out. I'm going to search the car. Um, and then if that's ever challenged at a suppression hearing, the officer's going to say, well, he consented. And if you're on body cam saying, okay, then you consented right. out of luck. Right. Um, it seems like, you know, the way, the way I put it, um, I sit as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, a, a judge, sometimes a pro tem judge, I hear mostly traffic cases and I begin every sitting when I, when I take the bench and I thank everybody for coming and I say, thank you for exercising your constitutional rights. That's what they're there for. That's what people have fought and died for. Um, so I, I wouldn't advise anybody to just give them up. Um, and we shouldn't have a culture in which exercising them is seen as confrontational and an invitation to fight. But, you know, that's, that's a lot easier to say when you're, you know, in the, you know, like me in the, group of people that don't, you know, really have confrontations or reason to fear them. Right. Well, and that's why it's important that there's people like you who are willing to say, hey, this is what it, I understand what it's like practically. And, and maybe this is what you need to do practically. But I'm also going to work to make reality align a little bit better with with principle and where things should be. Yeah, there are all sorts of, of very good activist groups that have have put out guidance on how to handle traffic stops um and th i think those have been really useful just the practice of everything being videotaped is is i think useful yeah um it's been documented that presence of body cameras does reduce the incidence of use of force not 100 percent. i mean you know there's high profile things that end up being on camera but you also have the right, if you want to, if you have your camera and you can mount it on the dashboard you know, on your phone, I mean, you know, turn a phone on, press record. Right. You're allowed to record the whole interaction too. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's a big problem that I think should be addressed legislatively because traffic enforcement does not need to be treated like, you know, cops and robbers, homicide, uh, you know, armed robbery investigations, hot pursuit of a dangerous criminal. They are different things. And the problem is that every so often they, they, they overlap. You'll hear every police officer will tell you this, that, that the you know, traffic stop is potentially the most dangerous thing you're ever going to do, which is true because sometimes they're unpredictable. And, you know, and, and, and you might stop somebody, you know, is dangerous with a weapon. The problem is 
99 times out of 100, 999 times out of 1,000, that's not the case. Um, you're writing somebody a ticket for, you know, I don't know, failing to come to a complete stop at a stop sign. And it's just some ordinary Joe citizen trying to get home. And I don't think we should default to treating every one of those interactions as if you're, you know, you're dealing with a dangerous, uh, you know, potential killer. And you brought up another line where, you know, the cop says, do you mind if I look around the car a little bit? And you said in the article, you talked about Jay-Z's response. It's really the one area you really disagreed with how Jay-Z responded. And you said this is the number one lesson you want people to take away from your article. And Jay-Z's response was, well, my glove compartment's locked, so is the trunk in the back. And I know my rights, so you're going to need a warrant for that. What was wrong about that answer and that response? What do people need to know about? Well, it's just it's just legally incorrect. Right. There is no warrant requirement for searching a car. Um, it's a probable cause requirement. So it doesn't matter if anything's locked. If the officer has probable cause to believe that any part of the car contains contraband or the fruits or evidence of crime, the officer has the right to search it, period. Um, this is It's called the automobile exception to the Fourth Amendment. A little bit weird to think why we would have one, but the reason is, the, the, the initial reason, was because you can move an automobile and it'll be gone by the time you come back with your warrant. Nowadays, query whether that's necessary because car, cars are pretty easily easily located. They're, you know, they're registered, they're license plate. Um, a lot of them have built-in GPS trackers, so if you got a warrant to search the car, you could probably get a warrant to figure out exactly where it is. Anyway, that's all speculative because, in fact, we do have an automobile exception to uh, the Fourth Amendment. It's, you know, it's gobbledygook. It's gibberish. It's like saying expelliarmus. You can't prevent the cop from searching your car if the cop has probable cause to believe that there's something to search for in the car, um, simply by saying, well, you need a warrant. So I, I, what I suggested in the article was that he could have said you're going to need some PC for that, which is true. I mean, probable that's, cause. that's what you need, right. probable cause. Um, in a lot of cases, a lot of car searches get litigated on this question. Was there probable cause to search the car? Um, you start with the with the, the first question, was there reasonable suspicion? That's a lower bar to detain the person at all. That's the, the standard is the Terry v. Ohio standard. Um, so was there reasonable suspicion to prolong the initial traffic stop? Reasonable suspicion meaning, oh my God, people come up with all sorts of things. He had an air freshener hanging on the rearview mirror. He was displaying an American flag. You know, the the, uh, the the car was dirty. The car was too clean. He had multiple keys on the ring. He had only one key on the ring. All of these things. Now you extend your traffic stop, and the question is, okay, do I have probable cause to search? Well, probable cause is a little higher bar, but it's still fairly low. But you have to point to something. You have to point to something specific, particularized that you see in the vehicle. Say, aha, that gave me probable cause to believe that the vehicle contained contraband. Um, and you can get you know, something you found in the search thrown out on the basis that there was not probable cause. Uh, but of course, it's so much easier for the officer just to say, hey, do you mind? And again, the statistics on this are that the vast majority of the time people say, sure, go ahead. People consent to a search. People will voluntarily consent to a search, even in context which the vehicle is full of contraband. I don't know why, but uh, but it does happen. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the advice is if, if an officer says, do, do you mind if I look around the car a little bit? Well, Jay-Z gave the right response, which is, no, I'm not consenting. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> now, his reason for not consenting was he thought there was a warrant requirement. OK, that's not going to get you anywhere. But as a practical matter, no, I'm not consenting. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the thing about the trunk being locked. Well, fine. Say say that you have a car and I don't know how old you're 
speeders are, but you know, I was in high school in the eighties and there were a lot of cars that would have a separate trunk key. And so you could lock the trunk, keep the key somewhere else, maybe even keep it at home. And you don't physically have the ability to open that trunk. Like you couldn't just push a button. So great. Good for you. What will the officer now do if the officer does develop probable cause? Well, that's rhetorical for you to answer. What will he do? If he doesn't have probable cause? If he does have probable cause, but physically you don't have the key. He'll impound the car. Oh, take out a crowbar and just oh, okay. break the trunk okay. open. Okay. <laughs> right? I mean, and he would be entitled to do that. Or uh, query whether, I no, I don't think you can impound the car. You can only impound the car if you're going to arrest somebody. Okay. But you could arrest, I mean, the, the probable cause might be a basis for arrest. But I think more likely the, the officer will just He'll do it right there. The okay. Um, yeah, so that was the one thing he got wrong. I mean, I do like the line. Glove compartment's locked, just the chunk in the back, and I know my rights, you're going to need a warrant for that. And, the, you know, the, of course it worked. The, the cop bought it, apparently, at least in the song. Right. You know, oh, oh I guess you're right. Are you a lawyer? Yeah. <laughs> Aren't you sharp um, as attack? Right. Right. So where does that idea, because that's not the first time you hear that idea that, oh, they can't search it if it's locked. Do you know where that idea came from? Yeah, so... Um, do you remember the kid who died when he had Coke and Pop Rocks yes. and he mixed them together? And yeah, same, same origin. Uh, explain that. That's hilarious deadpan humor. Okay. It's, it's just an it's urban a, myth. Oh, okay. Okay. Like it, it, your stomach would explode and you would die if you had Pop Rocks, which was a kind of candy in the eighties right. and you mixed it with Coke and drank it. There's, there's no legal basis for it whatsoever. Okay. The automobile exception comes from the twenties. I think the original case was called Acevedo, um, and it, it it simply says there is no warrant requirement for an automobile. Right. Period. All you need is probable cause to search the car or anything contained in it. Um, but there are a lot of urban myths yeah. around law enforcement. You know that like the one I bet I remember kids in high school used to say this one. Well, if you ask somebody if they're a narc, they they have to say they are. <laughs> right. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're a cop, you have to tell me. Right. I think that was in, was it Fast Times at Ridgemont High? That's right. I, they've, yeah, they've used that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not a real legal rule. Right. I want to ask you about your practice because, so you've you've worked, you work now as a defense attorney. You've worked as a prosecutor. And I think to a, the general public, I think it, it would seem weird. I talked about this just the other day with Robert Corn Revere. He was, he's a First Amendment lawyer who used to work for the FCC. And I said, isn't it, isn't it weird that you worked for this agency that was in charge of restricting the, the First Amendment, and now you're this big First Amendment advocate. And I think on the defense side, on the criminal side, a lot of people might be confused that, oh, you're such a strong advocate for defendants. <clears throat> How could you have been a prosecutor and been putting those same people in jail? Great question. That's a very common one. I, I, I get a lot of people in, in this line of work get that question. Let me ask you this first. Did your guy, your previous guest, did he concede that you could accurately describe the FCC as an agency aimed at restricting the First Amendment? Uh, he didn't completely deny. He didn't attack my argument on that on that sense. Well, I would say to make the analogy, I would say the FCC is not there. That's the Federal Communications Commission. I would right. say they're not there to restrict the First Amendment. They are there to attempt to regulate an area of society that we deem very important because we care about the First Amendment and this is where it's exercised. And if you did not have some sort of government participation in that arena, then the First Amendment would probably actually be trampled upon and would be less well protected. And therefore it's the same fundamental mission. 
whether you're suing the FCC for injunctive relief or you're on the FCC. That's what I would have said if I yeah. was. <laughs> but the, uh, <clears throat> I think the same thing is true here. You cannot have a just, fair, decent society without good people on both sides of the bar on, on, uh, uh, on criminal justice issues. You just, you just can't. You cannot have a society in which you're going to devote a ton of resources to enforcement and prosecution, uh, but, but none on uh, standing up for people accused of crime. I mean, otherwise, all of the protections that we have in place that are designed to, to, they're designed to prevent one thing. They're designed to prevent people from being wrongly convicted. That's really where all of these things uh, aim at. All of the criminal procedure uh, amendments, you know, the four, five, and six, the ones I spend a lot of my day with. Um, that's the goal uh, of, of this part of our constitutional structure is to make sure that when we use our the power of the state to uh, to punish somebody for, for committing uh, an offense, we get it right. And that doesn't work if you don't have uh, the, the effective resources on the defense side. You could imagine a system that was not fundamentally adversarial. I mean, we have an adversarial system. Everything is a clash in, in, in court. You could imagine a system, and there are countries that have this sort of a system where the judge and the prosecutor, you know, are the same individual, um, sort of the investing ma investigating magistrate model. There are South American countries that have that model. Some European countries have that model. In the Anglo-American tradition, we have an adversarial system. We have two advocates who have opposing points of view, and then we have the finder of fact, which is going to be a jury, and it's presided over by a judge. Um, I firmly believe that everybody who's interested in the you know the cops and robbers world criminal justice is if you're going to go into this that you should work on both sides of it you absolutely should you shouldn't commit at any point in your career to saying well i'm only going to do one side or i'm only going to do the other we should not be um we should we should not be devoted to simply one side of justice we should be devoted to justice it also i think is the case that uh, the best criminal defense lawyers tend to be former prosecutors. Um, not all of them. There are some excellent, excellent criminal defense lawyers who were never prosecutors, but most of them, uh, most of most of the top echelon of criminal defense lawyers were. Um, there's a reason for that. Uh, that's how you learn how to try a case. It's how you learn how to how to put together facts. It's how you learn how to cross-examine a witness. It's how you learn how to be comfortable in court. One of the hardest things about um, litigation is is just getting enough time to be comfortable on your feet in court. And there's no better place to learn how to do that than as a prosecutor. Um, anyway, so I don't see any conflict at all. And even substantively, I, I would say the vast, vast majority of prosecutors that I've known, they want the same thing that I want, which is I want, you know, full airing of the facts and a just result based thereon. Some of the, the, the majority of the fights I get into with prosecutors now are about discovery. Because um, unfortunately, there are prosecutors who think that it's you know their role to try and restrict the defense access to evidence. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't agree with that. And, uh, and I don't think our law agrees with that. That's a civil litigation model. Civil litigation, you fight constantly over over access to evidence because each side is asking the other to you know disclose bits and pieces of evidence and you try to keep the other side from finding things out uh and um i don't think criminal law should be like that at all whatever the government has show me right 
be like the, the be like the the, the 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 bull or the moose that that is going to mark its territory. The grizzly bear. You know, if you're the biggest bull in the herd, you just walk around and piss on every tree, and you, you walk into a clearing and you you paw your hoof and you you thrust out your big bull chest and you show your big bull horns and you say, okay, here I am. Right. Come and get me. Does anybody want to fight? Well, if you're the prosecutor, you ought to, in my opinion, uh, try your cases like that bull. If you have evidence, great. Show me the evidence. Convince me. Convince the jury. If you got the goods on my guy, go. Put it on. Convict him. Great. We'll have a trial about it. Uh, and, and, and you know, we'll fight about the evidence. But I, I don't think that uh, it's ever right to try to win a case um, by preventing the defendant from learning a relevant fact. And I would hope if you, you know, if you have any current prosecutors on, on, on your show and you ask them this question, they would say, oh yeah, of course, you know, we agree with that. The problem is in, you know, when it gets down to brass tacks in, in an actual case and I send a discovery request and I say, here's the 10 things I want and I don't get them, then, then I, I, I get in a bad mood. How do you ever move towards a system that's more like that because when why would the government agree to say yeah I'm just going to expose myself I mean it, it, if we're sticking with animal analogies it, it feels more like the government's a squirrel they're just going to find as many nuts as they can collect them and go and hide them and why would they ever say yeah you're right we should we should reveal our our nuts show you where we're hiding oh. them well because we have constitutional case law I mean particularly the Brady rule that says if the government has any evidence in its possession uh, that could reasonably be considered to be exculpatory, which as a practical matter means if you don't want the defendant to have it, then it's exculpatory. But could it reasonably be used to benefit the defendant's case? Then you're obligated to turn that over. That's a constitutional rule. Um, as a cultural matter, I think prosecutors ought to do full file discovery. Unless you have a specific articulable basis for keeping something secret, like say it's a case in which, you know, it's a, I don't know, it's a sexual assault case and you, you have a legitimate reason for thinking that, you know, your victim might be in danger. So great, fine. We do a protective order. We redact, the, you know, the, the victim's uh, address. And there's a lot of ways to, to uh, address that concern. Um, but other than stuff like that, I mean, the, the defendants should know what the prosecution's evidence is. This is not a game about, you know, ambushing people at trial with, with surprise witnesses or surprise facts or surprise testimony. And unfortunately, that's the sort of thing that all too often we see happening in TV shows and movies about courtroom practice. Uh, so you get kind of a public perception that courtroom practice is about hiding the ball as long as you can and then springing something on your opponent at trial. And in fact, that is the opposite of the way courtroom practice should be. The defense, on the other hand, gets to keep everything secret. Right? I mean, that's, I mean we, there are reciprocal discovery obligations, but the defense doesn't have to turn over evidence that's you know just purely for impeachment, for attacking the government's case, um, that you hold on to. But the government's case in chief, meaning the primary evidence that the government intends to put on to establish the elements of the offense, there is absolutely no reason why any of that shouldn't be discovered completely and immediately. Um, in, in terms, yeah. in terms of, of government transparency in, in criminal cases, are we in a better place today than we were, say, 25 years ago? Or are we on a good trajectory? I, I think we are on a good trajectory. Unfortunately, 
one of the ways that we've gotten on that trajectory is with high profile cases that have exposed instances in which prosecutors have buried evidence. Um, and uh, I, I mean, one of those, which is not in the afterward to the to the novel, but it's on the website. I had to take most of the stuff that was in the afterward and I put it on the Stand Up for Bastards website. But I have a discussion in one of those cases, and that was the prosecution of Ted Stevens, who was a senator from Alaska. Um, and the uh, the government's discovery turned out to have been incomplete, and uh, Senator Stevens was convicted based on uh, testimony that the defense could have impeached if they had been given this particular material. There were prior inconsistent statements uh, made by a key government witness that were in the government's file. They were in the notes of the agents, but were never turned over to the defense. Um, the problem is <clears throat> it takes so much time and energy and effort to go back after the fact and find that out. The Ted Stevens case, that only happened because an FBI agent filed a whistleblower complaint um, on a different issue. And there was an internal FBI investigation and you know it came up during that investigation that there were these notes that had never been produced to the defense. So the judge in the case, again, it was a high profile case involved the conviction of the US Senator. The judge appointed an independent counsel to review the entire file. Uh, and you know that's how we got to this result. So it was, I don't know, a year and million dollars of attorney time. You know, just <clears throat> that's not available in every case. So if you don't have the obligation clearly set out and followed beforehand as an affirmative rule that has to be followed, chances are you're never going to figure it out later. Um, in my opinion, this needs to be a, a matter of culture, ideology, professional pride, uh, that, that you should not feel like you're doing your job if you are being tight-fisted with your discovery. Um, if you, you can't... Yeah, go ahead. It, it, do you f see that there's a sense of that that ideology or of that professional pride in the profession right now? I think a lot of prosecutors believe, as I do, that if, if you can't get your conviction uh, without turning over all your evidence, then you should be in another line of work. Um, the DA's office here in Los Angeles County is actually quite good about discovery. In general, they will, you know, you ask for it, give a reason, they'll give it to you. You can have, you know, you can make a motion if there's something you want that you're not getting and you can litigate it with the court. But for the most part, uh, I think the office culture is actually quite good on that. Um, federal practice, when I was in DOJ, I mean, I was taught, I mean, this is where, this is where I learned, you know, this viewpoint initially, I was taught that that is, you know, one of the cardinal sins that you should never commit is failing to turn over evidence. And we spent, um, you know, a lot of time carefully combing our files, making sure that our discovery was complete. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that is part of the culture. It's not part of the culture everywhere. And I don't know that it's part of the culture to the full extent that it should be. Um, and <clears throat> there will, I guess there will always be some prosecutors who think, I guess if they feel that they're in kind of a holy war against the devil, then, then you know, they want to win 
by any means they can. But as right. Thomas More said, if you if you're going to cut down every tree in England to get at the devil, then what are you going to shield yourself with when he turns around and comes after you? Right. right. Yeah. Um, so I hope I hope that that's that becomes even more widespread. This should not be an adversarial process in the sense of trying to do whatever I can to beat the other guy. We should be, we meaning I'm the defense and you're the prosecutor. We should be teammates in the sense of we are both trying to achieve the same result, which is putting the evidence in front of a trier fact, the jury in a fair way. And then, then great. Now we'll be bulls. And I will say, look, man, I'm a better lawyer than you. I'm going to make a better argument than you. The jury's going to like me better than you, you know, you better give my guy a good deal or something like that. Right. And he'll say, no, you're an idiot. Your guy's going to be totally convicted. And, uh, you know, you got to take the deal. I'm offering you and fine. And then we go in and argue out in front right. of the jury. Let the jury decide. Yeah. And it, I think everybody, that's a fair result. You know, it, it still requires that that honor that you were talking about, that professional honor of of just may the best argument win as opposed to I'm just going to win by any means necessary. I don't really care how I win. I just need to get that that W as opposed to trying to win the right way. And I don't, once you lose that, that professional code, I don't know how you get it back. Yeah. You have to work to maintain it all the time. I don't like the practice, which is not universal, but people still do it of, of, you know, sort of rating, rating yourself as a prosecutor in the DA's office, you know, rating yourself by your win percentage. Right. Um, people should be proud of the cases that they voluntarily dismissed because the evidence turned out to cut against the, the, the initial charging decision. Um, that, it, that shouldn't happen often, but it should happen sometimes, and it shouldn't be something to be ashamed of. You should be willing to go into court and stand up and say, our job is to do justice. It's not simply to get convictions. And, you know, based on the evidence that we've discovered in this, we're not going to proceed. Unfortunately, there, you know, as long as you do have an office culture that simply rewards the W's, um, and and treats a dismissal as you know as sort of a shameful loss, then you're going to have this kind of built-in inertia. The way we we describe it here is, it's like a big stone that gets slowly rolling downhill. When before that stone is rolling, you know I can move it with one hand. If it's rolling very slowly, I can stop it with two hands. But by the time it's built up inertia and it's you know barreling down the hill, it's really hard to stop. So I want to ask you about your book, but I one more question about the Jay Z article. I think I know. No, it's fine. You, you act about anything. I'm I'm happy to talk about anything involving um, uh, in, in you know the law, criminal justice. It's all very interesting topics. This is a, a very straightforward question. So you you got a lot of attention for the article, like you said. A lot of people are using it. You were in a lot of like mainstream news articles. Did you ever hear from Jay Z? No, and um, I and and I. You know, I would have, I would have kind of liked that. I know that would be um, cool. The uh, the closest I got to him was there was a time I don't know when it was, but there was a brief window of time when if you went to Google, like Google Images, and you typed in Caleb Mason, what you would get would be there was one of me and then one of Jay Z. <laughs> I mean, it was two different photos, but they were right next right. to each other. You right. know, it's, you could imagine we were. Uh, you could imagine we were in the same room. No, we never did. I would have been. Um, I would have really liked to know what he thought of it. Yeah. You know, because uh, it's, I don't know, your readers can look at the article and see it, but what, what the article is, is every single line of the second verse has a substantive discussion of, you know, 
a page about the the legal issues that are raised by it. And then I put in this, I thought was the most helpful part of it, hopefully for readers was I put in a ton of footnotes um, that actually directed the reader to cases addressing this particular issue. Um, And I think it's the sort of thing that he might have thought was interesting because it, it shows a really direct connection between his work and the actual legal world uh, of, of criminal justice taken seriously by, you know, somebody who works professionally in that world. Um, and anyway, I'd still be happy to do it. Um, the uh, All he's got to do is call, but, you know, next time he's out here in L.A., That'd be. I would love to see a collaboration between you guys. Um, yeah, that would be. <laughs> that would be. That would be fun. So you mentioned footnotes, and one of your footnotes, you talked about how because you wrote this article back in 2012, which was really the advent of of cameras on phones, and you talked about this a little bit earlier, is that it's it's been a boon for people who are trying to hold police accountable. And you actually said in that footnote, you said having cameras on phones will be great for people to hold police accountable. So I think you, you're probably pretty happy with that prediction. Oh, yeah. There's a couple others in there that turned out to be accurate. I also predicted that the Supreme Court would come around to finally repudiating its uh, – it had an old holding that a dog sniff is not a search. And the Supreme Court finally did that like two or three years after the uh, after the article. There was a case where if you uh, – you know, you took a, a dog who's in Florida. I forget what the other part uh, named Jardine, I think. If you took a, uh, if you took your dog to somebody's front door and had the dog put its nose down the base of the door and sniffed the air coming out, could you then say, well, hey, you know, your honor, not a search. All we're doing is examining the air molecules that are in the public space here outside the house. Um, the, uh, the Supreme Court finally held, look, that's a search. But there had been a lot of case law on the use of dogs, particularly around vehicles, um, holding that that's simply not a search, meaning it requires no quantum of suspicion whatsoever. And as far as vehicles go, uh, I think, um, I hope somebody writes me to correct me on this, but I don't believe that the Jardine decision, which applies to houses, um, has been fully applied to cars. So at least as I generally understand the doctrine as it stands today, if you have your dog ready and waiting, uh, then you can simply walk the dog around the car while you're doing the traffic stop, while you're writing the ticket. And then you have not violated either the prolongation component or the, you know, the search without PC um, component. But yeah, the, 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 the cell phones, the prevalence of cell phones, I think has been really important. The, the, I don't know. I guess at some point we got to stop saying this so optimistically because we still have, you know, unfortunately pretty regular stream of unpleasant incidents. But I think that increased transparency and public awareness is the best protection against abuse of police powers. It's obviously not a full and complete protection. You know, you have incidents that people are being filmed, you know, by 10 different cameras and they still, they still do something unconstitutional, but at the very least, you know, it allows people to hold officers accountable when they do act out. It, it's um, a question we hear a lot. Is police you know, malpractice, is it on the rise or is it just that we're seeing it more because it's being filmed more? So I, I have an opinion on that. I think it is on the decline. I think it is much less 
prevalent than it used to be, um, and particularly the kind of street level corruption uh, that was endemic in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, you had sort of the Mullen Commission report uh, from New York City in 1994, I think. Um, and uh, uh, prior commissions in Chicago, and you know we had one in LA about sort of you know groups of police who who on a daily basis just extorted uh, the the local community. Often it was extorting drug dealers or you know businesses, but you know just widespread systemic corruption. I think that has declined dramatically, really dramatically. We, I, um, and part of that has been an increased emphasis on, you know, making the, the profession professional, which means, you know, paying people more, having professional standards and training and emphasizing that, having a culture that, you know, that rewards longevity. Police have very good contracts. They have a built-in incentive not to lose their job because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a well-paying job with a, with a pension, um, which, you know, most places, you know, most, most jobs, most workers don't get a pension anymore. Um, what is still prevalent, I think, to to a problematic degree is the use of violence in the job, the use of force. Um, and that includes, you know, not just force that's adjudicated as illegal or unconstitutional, but also force that's, you know, examined and deemed to be within policy or constitutional. But still, I think as a as a policy matter, we, we would want to avoid Um this is a lot of people talk about this, you know, the trend of sort of militarization of police, um, you know, increasing the the, the, you know, the kind of weaponry. Um, it's to me, it's 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 beyond just the physical gear. It's a mindset uh, of viewing the area being patrolled as sort of enemy territory, populated with with dangerous potential uh, assailants. Um, and that's a really, really difficult cultural issue for police because it is, in fact, a dangerous job. And there are, in fact, a lot of risks and people do face violence from unexpected quarters. The problem is, if you take that as your focus and you approach all of your interactions that way, then you are just going out geared up every shift to put your hands on somebody. And... Uh, it's those kinds of, you know, we would call sort of ordinary violent encounters where, where uh, a, 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 a sort of run-of-the-mill interaction escalates to violence, of which the George, Floyd, the George Floyd case is the absolute paradigmatic example. This was a small, low-level property crime, um, and it ended with a man's death. And I think a lot of that had to do with the mindset of the officers who saw him. They somehow they just, despite everything, saw him as a dangerous threat that had to be controlled through physical force, even when it was obvious. It sure looks obvious watching the video. It appeared obvious to the to the eyewitnesses on scene that this was absurd. This was excessive. This person is not threatening you. Get off him. Um, I think that's symptomatic of a, a broader trend uh, that is fairly widespread in American policing, but it's not universal. And there's also a countervailing trend um, of trying to do, you know, what's, what's broadly defined as community policing, but policing in a way that, that's not inherently uh, confrontational and adversarial. Um, I'll tell you one of the things that I think would really help in this area 
is is not relying on our police departments to respond to every single you know problem in the community um such as mental health calls for example which in a lot of departments constitute a very large percentage of the calls i don't think for the most part and it's not just me who thinks this a lot of my you know policy experts in this area think this, that those calls don't require an armed law enforcement response. It's a person who has mental health issues. Now, if you do respond with armed police officers who are trained and prepared to respond to crime, that's what's going to happen. That's what you're going to get. Right. The person's going to be unruly. He's going to talk back. He's going to run. Maybe he's, you know, he's going to be scared. Maybe he's going to raise his hand to somebody. And now all of a sudden you have an incident that just didn't need to happen. Um, and the same thing, I think, with a lot of traffic enforcement does not need to be handled by the same officers who are trained to respond to crimes. Traffic enforcement is really different. I think you could do a lot of traffic enforcement without even pulling people over and, uh, and you know, walking around the car, peering in, looking for evidence of contraband, trying to escalate the encounter. The term I used to use for those, or I mean, the term I used in the Jay-Z article is a get lucky bust. You know, where you just stop somebody for, for a traffic offense and you hope you're going to get lucky if you can just escalate it into a car search. Um, I don't think there's any need to, to, to do that. If somebody's speeding, the technology exists if they're observed speeding by an officer who's driving behind them. And the way this normally happens is the officer will pace the other car for, you know, whatever, a quarter mile or going 80 miles an hour. All that evidence is already there. You don't need to pull the guy over and write him a ticket. Mail him a ticket. Right. Um, that's interesting. Wait, why, why don't they do that? That seems like it's a, that's a common sense solution. Well, because when the practice of enforcing traffic laws started in the 1940s and 50s, you didn't have this technology. And so we do it the way we did it because it was good enough for me. It's good enough for you. I mean, that's just how it's always been done to say that we should give traffic. And I just made this suggestion, to, you know, that's a radical, radical change right. in the way police departments operate. We did experiment doing this with red light cameras, if you remember. And did the public like it? Not at all. No, they did not. The public hates red light cameras. Um, And one of the things the public hates about red light cameras is that you get a ticket mailed to you and you didn't even know you committed the offense. What are you talking about? I didn't even know I did that. Um, That feels unjust. In a way, I think to a lot of people, it feels more just to be told right at the outset, okay, here's the lights. I just watched you do this. Here's your ticket. Um, Maybe we should be, you know, having a discussion about, about, not always pulling people over for a physical encounter every time they're observed committing a traffic violation. I mean, if you have a video of the person committing the traffic violation and you can get them their traffic ticket, there isn't really a whole lot more to litigate. The one thing you litigate in the red light tickets is was the person who received the ticket in the mail, who's the registered owner of the car, was that person actually the driver? If they were not, we dismiss. Right. Um, so you would run the risk if you did your speeding tickets that same way or you're, you know, I don't know, crossing the yellow line or whatever. If you did if you did other tickets that same way, you'd run the risk that a certain percentage of those are going to be, you know, the, the person who was driving the car was not the registered owner. The other problem is, you know, in a red light ticket, they get a good photo of the face of the driver. So you can actually resolve this. If a person goes to court and says it wasn't me, the judge can look at the two, you know, look at the photo, look at the person there and compare. If you're just following somebody on the highway, you may not get a good view of their face. Anyway, these are all things that I think could be addressed with technology. And if we think that it's a problem in our country that we have ordinary traffic stops that turn into a deadly shooting and somebody's dead after they were stopped for speeding, 
if we think that that's a bad thing, I think it's probably time to explore another way to enforce traffic laws. Right, right. If and then you save the you save the police for responding to to real serious crimes. Right. Which I, I imagine that the vast majority of officers would rather do that than write traffic tickets as well. Yeah, yeah. If you have time, I'd love to talk a little bit about your new book. Sure. Great. So the book is Stand Up for Bastards. Uh, what I love about it is that unlike other novels written by by lawyers or or, or ex lawyers. You, it's obvious that this was written by someone who currently practices law. I mean, the, the detail that you go into and you do it in a, in a really engulfing way, but it, it's a it's a learning experience, this book. Uh, so first of all, can you tell me where you got the idea? This is your first book, your first novel, where you got the idea to write it? Well, I've written a ton of stuff. In addition to the, to the you know, I've been writing professionally for, I don't know, 20 plus years. Um, in addition to the to the legal scholarship that goes in law reviews, I've written a lot of that. I've also written, you know, popular essays, popular meaning like you know op eds and and for magazines on uh, on on criminal justice and legal issues. Um, and uh, I started out life as we were talking about, I guess before we started recording, as a literature teacher. I taught the Western uh, literature uh, core curriculum at Columbia for two years. Um, and uh, I always wanted to be a writer. I mean, you know, shortstop, um, uh, rock and roll musician, um, and maybe screenwriter. I don't know. But, the, you know, shortstop, come and gone, not going to happen. Whatever. I always wanted We've to be a writer. We've all been there. Um, yeah. Uh, the... Um, so yes, I've written I've written quite a lot. This is the first novel that's been published. It's the first novel that I finished. Um, I have been working on a, a, a screenplay pilot with the co-author here, and we thought we thought we had a lock on it because he's a doctor and I'm a lawyer, and you know it's about medicine, law, and crime. I mean, anyway, we haven't sold that one, but I've I've written I've written a ton of stuff. I I, I wrote when I was at Columbia just for fun. I wrote a, a three act like Shakespearean tragedy based on the life of Richard Daly, the mayor of Chicago, in iambic pentameter. Um, which was which was fun, but no one's ever going to read that, you know, until I'm dead, probably if then. Uh, but yes, so I always wanted to write. I will tell you the genesis for the uh, for the the core I, uh, idea in the book. You know, the backstory of of one of the main characters. This is in the afterward, so people could turn right to it. But it's there was a Supreme Court case um, involving a Louisiana law that allowed the husband in a marriage to mortgage or encumber, to take a loan on the home, using the home as collateral, without telling the wife or getting the wife's permission. Only the husband could do this because the husband was deemed to be the head and master of the property. That was by operation of Louisiana law. Uh, and the case that finally made it to the Supreme Court involved uh, a wife who had accused her husband of molesting the three-year-old daughter. And the husband, to pay for his defense counsel, uh, mortgaged the house. Um, then the uh, husband disappeared and left town without paying the defense counsel. And the defense counsel came and foreclosed on the house to take the house from the wife. Um, that was a real case. In the, in the real case, case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided that this head and master rule, allowing the, the husband but not the wife to mortgage the house without telling the other co-owner, was unconstitutional. But, said the Supreme Court, we are not going to get into the business of all the times this has happened in the past. We are not, in other words, going to make this rule retroactive. It will have 
prospective application only. So I read that case in law school and I thought to myself, in fact, I wrote it down the same day. I still have my little notes say this. What a great idea for a detective novel. You tell it from the perspective of the little girl in the story who has now grown up after having actually lost the house and the property uh, in this dispute. Now she's grown up and she's seeking vengeance. Um, the that's to me that sort of checked all the boxes for the backstory of a, of a good detective novel. So anyway, that was the legal idea, but I, you know, I've read all of the, I think, uh, all of the main big American detective writers, you know, Dashiell Hammett and, uh, and Raymond Chandler, um, and Ross McDonald, who I think is the best of the three. Um, those are sort of your big three. And then obviously I love Michael Connelly and James Elroy. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a genre that I really like to read. And, I, so I started writing this, I think I started writing it while I was clerking in Pittsburgh, working for a federal judge. Um, and I wrote on it, I don't know, off and on for that. That means I was working on it for 12 or 13 years at least before I sold it. Um, and I would write it a little bit at a time. And my goal was always to write a book about the, the you know, the business of crime, investigating crime, litigating crime, you know, the, the, the cops and robbers world, but law and criminal justice that I could stand to read as somebody who works in the field and not think was just, you know, complete BS, which is unfortunately what happens, I think, a lot um, with the police procedural or law right. drama genre, more with the TV than with the books. I just can't watch most of the cop shows and law shows. Some of them are okay. Um, but that's one of the things that I always liked about Michael Connolly is he was a, you know, he was a crime reporter for the LA Times. Um, so he spent years just going to hearings and sort of writing down what people said, you know, watching the lawyers. And you, you see that in his books. Um, but yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to write it as a detective novel. So our hero is not a lawyer. Our hero observes lawyers. He watches them, but he's not one. Um, and he doesn't fully understand, you know, their world. Uh, he's, a, he's a former police officer. But like any good detective, he was kicked off the force in disgrace. Um, so those are, I don't know, those are sort of your core elements. And then, and then, you know, you have to have the, you have to have, have the beautiful women, you know, with enigmatic, uncertain agendas. And, and you, you said you wanted this to be a book that people in the legal profession could read and, and not think it's ridiculous. And that's what I took from it. And you, I also took from it that this is, again, it's, it's a learning experience for non-lawyers because you talk about Miranda rights and you have some, you have like a very, there's a scene in there that's this court testimony that it's just a really interesting back and forth that again, if you're watching a court TV show, it doesn't really seem to, to grasp the essence of what actually happens in court. But in your book, it really felt like you did that. Did you intend it to be a learning experience for non-lawyers? Did you intend to have these little lessons in here about what Miranda rights are and, and the importance of, of, uh, of having evidence versus having someone give a confession? Well, I mean, yes, I didn't intend it to be a learning experience exactly, I guess, not in the way that the Jay-Z article was explicitly intended to be that. I mean, this right. is supposed to be a book that hopefully people will like reading if they, you know, like reading books. It has to it has to succeed as a book. But I think that people generally, the public who are not, you know, criminal justice professionals, I think they find these constitutional questions really interesting. In my experience talking to people about various things, this is not a topic that, you know, causes eyes to roll back in your head and, you know, you just fall asleep. People like to hear 
about the business of investigating crime. Um, people like to hear, you know, oh, what is Miranda? What does what does Miranda actually mean? What was the genesis of it? What happened when you know when the case was decided? Why don't we have a Miranda rule for car searches? Um, how does a how does a how does a preliminary hearing work? Um, what what does suppression of evidence mean? Uh, I I think those are things that people do genuinely find interesting. So I tried to have our characters actually talk about um, real legal issues. And one of the characters, you know, the, the AUSA, John Schofield, he tells, he likes to tell Marcus Eden stories about real cases. And, you know, those are, those are modeled on uh, actual high profile cases that a lot of them ended up, you know, some of them ended up in the media anyway, the story of James Comey. Everybody's heard of James Comey now. Right. Actually, when I when I wrote this, that was not the case. Um, the uh, when I first started, you know, working on the book, um, he hadn't become the, the public figure he is today. But anyway, I think those are I think those are topics that people really like to hear about. I find them personally more interesting than just another book about a serial killer whose motive appears to be that he's a serial killer. Right. And then somebody has to find him. And they, they succeed because he dropped the coin in the garden and it had his fingerprints on it. I mean, I don't know. That's just to me, that's that's much less interesting. As far as the scene you're talking about with the preliminary hearing, I can tell you how I started writing that. I took yeah. one of my own I took one of my own court transcripts um, and uh, and then I just started tailoring it to, you know, it wasn't mine wasn't a homicide case, but it was, you know, it's similar, the similar back and forth, the similar objections. And I mean, that's just what we do. Every every court hearing, you're going to generate a transcript if you're if you're, you know, if you're in a high enough stakes case that you're, you're going to pay for it every time. You don't get the transcripts for free, but you need them um, for a lot of cases. So you go back and you look at them and, and you know, you can you can see the, the way people argue and the way people talk. And I did want the book to reflect the, the way court actually looks and feels and sounds. And it's funny, you made me think, because you talked about how you, you have written already a lot for, for a popular a general audience. And it reminded me of, I studied economics as an undergrad, and I had a professor who would rant about Milton Friedman. She hated Milton Friedman, and and, and not just for his his views and, and his stances on things, but just the fact that he had this platform to speak to such a big audience. And I thought, well, you could do the same thing if, if you tried to reach a general audience. That's just, that's how he's sort of positioned himself right. to, to have a message that he can send to a general audience. And, and really anyone, any professor, any academic, any professional could do the same if, if they wanted to apply themselves in that way. How how important do you think it is to try to do that, to try to reach a general audience as an academic, as a legal professional, to try to bridge that gap between what's going on in the ivory tower or, or up on the, the 40th floor to what the general public sees? Well, I think it's extremely important. Um, and I think that, that, you know, we all ought to do it to the extent we can. Um, I mean, what do most people in the public know about, say, let's pick our big three, medicine, law, and uh, policing, police investigations? Well, we know the way they're depicted in TV shows and movies. Um, and who was writing those? Not professionals in the field. Um, you know, maybe you'll, you, if you get really lucky, I have a friend who's a LAPD detective who works as a consultant for, you know, various shows, but I mean, they call her in and they'll be like, Oh, does this look right? Is this how, you know, the detective would walk or, you know, is this, but 
the people actually writing the scripts, coming up with the stories, telling the you know telling the the narrative, shaping the public perception of it, are not professionals in the business. Um, and obviously, that's going to be the case because we you know we don't we don't have time, <laughs> and I think for the most part we don't have the you know the skills or the inclination. You know, turning out compelling TV screenplays has got to be really hard. Uh, my my buddy and I worked for for months to just to get our pilot screenplay. So we thought was really good, but you know we haven't sold. Um, but it's a it's a difficult question because if you're working twelve hours a day, um, you know we we started this at five o'clock my time. I don't, I don't I don't care. I already had to take two calls in the middle of it, and you know probably have more. But I'll let you go soon. Um, I promise. No, no, no. I, it's fine. I don't care. I I I uh, I normally take the train, but I, I figured I'd be late tonight, so I brought my car. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be just fine. Um, getting home. I do take the train, even in LA. I love the train. Um, but uh, it's it's not on the list of things that you're paid to do and that you're ethically obligated to do. What you're ethically obligated to do is to zealously represent your client. To do that right, to do that well, conscientiously, takes a ton of time, especially when you're overloaded and you know understaffed, like a lot of public agencies are. So it's just not likely to happen that people who are actually working in the field are also going to be, you know, creating for public consumption, uh, good, useful, accurate, you know, kind of narratives or summaries of how the field works. The other problem obviously is confidentiality. I mean, you can't, you can't talk about it. You can't do a reality show where the TV crew comes in and, you know, films all your interactions with the client and your deliberations and, you know, your, yeah, you can film the court appearances. That's about it. Um, so there, there's an element of, you know, just it's difficult to even convey how litigation and representation of criminal defendants works. Um, I don't know. It's I, I, I guess the best option is you work in the you work in the field for long enough that you do understand its nuances um, and then you can go and write. Right. Um, there are people who have done that. I mean, Scott Turow is a great example of, of somebody who did that. I, um, I think I was going to say my my favorite scene in the book, and and it really is. It's there's a lot of thrilling scenes. It's a page turner. You sent me the book. I think I finished it in in like three days. It's one of those oh, books wow. that I I stayed up past my bedtime reading. So <laughs> I really did enjoy it. But my favorite scene because it, it spoke to me is at. Towards the, I think it was like the very end of the book, and and two of the characters are they're in Washington D.C. They're on the National Mall talking, and and the one character is saying how he likes to go for a jog around the National Mall and past the monuments because it, it restores his his sense of uh, his faith in justice and in the Constitution. And the other character is kind of mocking him, like you really do that unironically. But I remember when I lived in D.C., I I did the same exact thing, and there is this this sense of awe that you have when you do go past those monuments, especially when you're, when you're like, when you're living there and you're, you're seeing that every day. And I, I wonder if that scene came from, from your heart. Like it felt like a, a very heartfelt scene that, that maybe you had experienced. Well, yourself. of course okay. I've done, I went to law school in DC. I've done that. I've, I don't know. I've probably done that a hundred times and you do have that feeling. I mean, where did you, where did you run when you, when you did it? I, I, so I, I was staying, I was interning and I lived on GW's campus. So I was just living three blocks from the Lincoln Memorial. So I would really, mm -hmm. you know, run out of my, my dorm room. I was staying in straight down to the mall. I think past the, 
uh, I forget. I think it was the IMF was the building that was in between me and and the memorial, and just kind of do a full lap all the way, you know, to to Congress and back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to go. So the the law school, Georgetown, where I went to law school, it's up by the Capitol building. So you could, if you were starting your run at the law school, you'd run over and and then basically start at the Capitol building. Or if you wanted to, if you were feeling in the mood, you could loop up a block and start at the Supreme Court, which is just across the street from the Capitol. Um, but then, so the Capitol is actually on kind of a hill. I mean, they call it Capitol Hill, but right. there is actually a hill. Uh, and, and so if you start there, then you go down the National Mall and you're going to go past the Smithsonian and all the museums and the Justice Department. And then you look over to your right and there's the White House. And then you go all the way down to uh, past the Washington Monument. And then you go to the Lincoln Memorial. And then, you know, you go up the steps to the Lincoln Memorial, do your little rocky thing, and then you can turn around and, and come back. Um, but, yeah, oh, my goodness, absolutely. Uh, you, you feel the, uh, you know, inspired by, you know, this is supposed to be the embodiment of our constitutional democracy here, right there. It's, it's really sacred space. Um, I guess that, you know, now has a different resonance now that we've seen what happens when people violate that sacred space. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's something that everyone ought to do at least once, you know, go down, go down to DC and you can walk it. You don't have to jog it. Right. It's and easy. I, it's pretty flat, you know, most of the way. Yeah. yeah. Just, just don't do it in August. Like I was doing. Cause oh, yeah, that yeah. humidity will kill you. That will kill you. <laughs> it, and I know it's. It's easy to be cynical, and it's probably especially for you when you're seeing the justice system. We talked a little bit about this. You're seeing it every day and, and the flaws in it. And so is that something you have to kind of keep in mind to keep yourself going, to keep from becoming too cynical? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's easy to get – it is easy to get cynical. Um, however – I think there are also daily reminders that our system in many respects works fairly well. Um, the, the problems that we have in the criminal justice system, a lot of them I think stem from underfunding. Um, but a lot of them have also been identified and addressed over the years. Uh, and People who work in the business, I think, for the most part, are people of good faith who genuinely believe that they're participating in um, something that's necessary for having a just, fair, you know, equal, prosperous, safe society. Um, and it is something worth being idealistic about. Uh, I think that's particularly true for lawyers who work in the you know, what I always call the cops and robbers side of things, as opposed to just, you know, whatever, setting up a, a merger and acquisition for big companies, which, by the way, is where most lawyers spend their days. Right. The vast majority of lawyers never see the inside of the courtroom, never try a criminal case, never stand up and say, Your Honor, I object, you know, never stand up and say, you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I ask you to return a verdict. That, you know, those sort of core would feel to me like the core lawyerly activities. That's not what most lawyers spend their time doing. So when you hear about lawyers hating the profession and being miserable and suffering from burnout, and, you know, I think to me anyway, that captures lawyers who are kind of stuck in, the, in, the, in their cubicle or sitting at their office till 11 o'clock at night trying to help some company make a little bit more money on some transaction. I think you could very easily 
get cynical and, and depressed and jaded. And I was bitter. there. I know. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, you worked at a big firm, right? I mean, anybody, anybody who spent time doing transactional work in a big firm knows what that's like. I people who do this sort of practice don't have that problem. Right. We got plenty of our own problems, um, <laughs> but not that one. I, I I never feel as though uh, I'm not doing anything meaningful or important. Everything I do all day is devoted to trying to help somebody else deal with what in most cases is the worst thing that's ever happened to them, the biggest problem that they're ever going to have. And trying to help them solve that um, is, it, 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 you know, it's always rewarding and meaningful. Um, so that's that would be my advice for people who are, who are listening and wondering, especially if you're a law student, wondering what kind of law to go into. Why not? Maybe you're not going to make as much money, but you can make some money. Right. And, uh, and you can and, feel good at the end of the day. Exactly. And that's, again, speaking from experience, I think that's such a vital thing for, for law students and, and people thinking about becoming lawyers to think about is, is how do you actually want to spend your days? Don't just look at the dollar signs. Look at, is this something that's actually going to fulfill you when you go home every night? Uh, but I think that's a great place to end this. Caleb Mason, the, the book is Stand Up for Bastards. It really is just a, an excellent book. I know that, actually, I wanted to ask you one more question because I know the title comes from King Lear. Can you tell me why you picked that title, why that stuck out to you? Well, there's only a few Shakespeare speeches that I have memorized. Um, and uh, I always liked that one. Um, you know, it's part of the, 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 the line is now God stand up for bastards. And it's what the, you know, the, the bastard son, King Lear is, you know, they got two sons, one of them's a different one of them's not, um, the, uh, <clears throat> the story is about, uh, not to give anything away, but you know, yes, the, the young girl in the Kurtzberg versus Feenstra, you know, Louisiana property case, the backstory is yes, she does grow up. Yes. She does seek vengeance, et cetera. Um, the uh, <clears throat> that doesn't give anything away, no worries. Um, what I think makes the best crime fiction or detective fiction is a situation in which a person feels that the social and legal institutions that govern their world are not there to help them, that they have fallen through a crack, they've been ignored, they've been discarded, they cannot avail themselves of the normal tools you would use to solve your problems that's where you get the best detective fiction and that's exactly what shakespeare is exploring here that you have this you know this ridiculous inheritance system why do they call us bastards why do they call us base you know the, the speech is about you know it's a, it takes a lot more energy and and intrigue and and uh you know and sexual potency to create a bastard than it does you know to create a whole tribe of fox of fops you know got between the sleep and wake, that's what the, that's what he, you know he says, as um, Edmund. But uh, th that um, it's simply unfair that a person should should suffer because of an accident of birth, and not just an accident of birth, but an accident of birth that's sort of a stupid, arbitrary, indefensible legal rule. So, in my mind, that exactly captured what you know our femme fatale. There's two of them, so you don't know who it is. But our femme fatale uh, feels as she has been victimized and exploited. Actually, three of them that feel this way. Uh, victimized and exploited by this completely indefensible legal rule that the Supreme Court says, totally unconstitutional, but no remedy for you. 
because it's prospective application only. And, uh, and now, you know, she's lost her home. She's lost a family. Uh, and, and, and this is, there's nobody to stand up for her. So my spin on the line at, at, at the end of the book, again, not really giving anything away, I don't think is, you know, the, the, obviously our heroine stands up for herself, right? So if God's stood up for bastards, uh, then you wouldn't need to stand up for yourself. But maybe that's the lesson to learn is, is that nobody's going to stand up for you. So stand up for yourself. Uh, Caleb, thank you again. It's an excellent book. I'll be sure to include the links in the show notes so people can can get to it quickly. I really appreciate your time. Hey, my pleasure. It was nice talking to you, and I'm so glad you liked the book. That really means a lot. 